Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, May 4th, 2012. Okay, we're going to do something slightly different. This isn't a light edition of Fighting for the Faith, but I want to kind of zero in on a particular topic. The uh, work of the Holy Spirit, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about this here in a second. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said. We're doing the discernment work to see if what people are saying really squares with what God's Word says when we read it in context. That's kind of the important part. There's a lot of crazy ideas running around out there. Some of them uber dangerous, some of them just mistaken and, and off topic. And and really, there's no such thing as a safe, bad doctrine. Does that make sense? It, you know, Some are, are more dangerous than others, uh, but uh, every false doctrine has a has the potential to really knock you off of your focus on Christ and to create doubt where there should be faith and certainty. So that the idea here is, is that uh, we want you to be good students of God's Word. You, we want you to be in God's Word. That's the idea. And don't just take my word for it or your pastor's word for it. The idea is, is that the Bereans, according to Acts 17, were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians because when the Apostle Paul came to town, they checked the gospel that he was preaching against the word of God that they had. They tested even the Apostle Paul by, well, God's word. So here's the question. What is the job? What 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 does Scripture reveal? That's probably a better way of putting it. What has God himself revealed you know, regarding the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I got to give you a little bit of context here, and um, I've got a particular thing in mind. And I've got Blackaby on the brain, and I've got something that uh, Mark Driscoll um, recently posted on his YouTube channel. Um, He was preaching in Ephesus, you know, at the uh, at the library there in Ephesus. You know, he was on the steps. He was on the top there, you know, preaching from the library steps. And um, it, it was supposedly, uh, you know, f- doing an exposition on the book of Revelation chapter 2 as it pertains to Jesus's 
uh, words that were taken down by the Apostle John to be delivered to the uh, church in Ephesus. In fact, let me read that first. I'll do an intro to the uh, Driscoll segment. We'll take a listen to what he's saying. I'll take a look at that in light of God's word. And then what we're going to do is we're going to I'm going to uh, hand everything over to uh, uh, the Reverend Ernie Lassman of Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington. I thought that would be appropriate uh, considering that uh, Ernie Lassman is a pastor in the metropolitan Seattle area uh, where also uh, Mark Driscoll uh, has his church. So anyway, so here's what we're going to do. I just want to read this passage of Scripture for you real quick. Revelation chapter 2, I'm going to start at verse 1. Uh, Jesus, this is a, a message from Jesus. If you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, then you'll note, well, that this is in written in red letters. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil." but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. So we start off, Jesus starts off with praise for the Ephesians for testing those people who claim to be apostles and finding out and discovering using God's word that they were false. Okay. So he says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So apparently they had lost their love. You know, So it's kind of an interesting thing that Jesus is rebuking them for. It says, it says yet this you have, you hate, hate, the work of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans, by the way, were a uh, an antinomian sect. Antinomian meaning that they were anti-law. You know, basically, now that you're saved, you can do whatever you want. You know, who needs? You know, that that's the kind of thing. Um, so uh, yet you, I yet, yet you, this you have. You hate the work of the Nic- Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise. Of God, so I mean, there you go. So Jesus is commending the uh, the Church of Ephesus for testing people who called themselves apostles and found that they were false. Jesus commends them for that, but they had lost their love. They had lost their love, which is, I think, you know, you think about that, and it's like, okay, that's an interesting thing. So it's possible, it's absolutely possible for somebody to be a good student of God's word, to be discerning, but to lose their love. And so God, God, Jesus Christ, commends them and commands them to repent, to keep go back to what they were doing, and obviously keep doing what they're doing as far as testing those who claim to be apostles and testing them against the word of God. So that's the idea. They'd lost their love, and so Jesus uh, sends them that message. Now, what I'm going to do here. Uh, since we're going to be doing a Mark Driscoll segment, I've got to play our Mark Driscoll segment music, um, which um, you know to you know to kind of intro the segment, and then I'm going to play audio from a sermon preached by Mark Driscoll in Ephesus. 
uh, on this particular text where he said some things that are just, well, not right. Something's way, way off, and I'll explain what the problem is here. It's kind of a, a, a wrong view of the work of the Holy Spirit that's at play here, and as a result of it, he's giving the wrong corrective for the right problem. Does that does that make sense? So uh, anyway, hang on a second here. Uh, here is our Mark Driscoll update music. So uh, when two tribes go to war, I'm not a particular fan of Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And I'm listening to this going, how how was that a popular hit? (laughs) Yeah, I'm thinking that maybe some of us kids who grew up in the uh, 80s may have lacked a little bit of musical taste there. Anyway, uh, yeah, the whole point being is is that, well, Mark Driscoll's kind of a big tribe guy. So, uh, you know, that seems to be the... uh, the 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 word du jour when it comes to um, or the concept du jour when it comes to Mark Driscoll kind of you know he's got some very strong anti-Cartesian roots there anyway um, so this is Mark Driscoll and the name of the video you can find it on YouTube by the way it's called Don't Elevate Doctrine Above the Holy Spirit Don't Elevate Doctrine Above the Holy Spirit and I mean the title itself is like wrong-headed and screwy. And that's not what Jesus is getting at in Revelation chapter 2 in his letter that he had the Apostle John uh, write down. Jesus dictated it to him and to have delivered there. So, I mean, just the title is just screwy. But uh, anyway, uh, here's Mark Driscoll preaching from the the steps of the library there in in the city of Ephesus in uh, in Turkey, in Asia Minor. So uh, here we go. Number two, we can become like the Ephesians um, when we listen only to our doctrines and stop listening to the Holy Spirit. Okay. <laughs> Boy, it didn't take very long there. You know, nine seconds in. What? We can become like the Ephesians when we listen to our doctrines and stop listening to the Holy Spirit. What is he talking about? Um, the reason I say that is is because, it, uh, well, I've got particular passages in mind. Let me give you a, a couple that, well, at least you know one to start off with, and you'll kind of get what I'm talking about here. 
Um, Second Timothy chapter three. Second uh, Timothy chapter three. I'm going to start at verse ten, and um, and kind of work my way forward a little bit. There's a particular thing I want to show you, but I want to show it to you in context. And it's this. It says, he says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured yet for uh, from them all the Lord rescue me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, Here's the key verse, verses, the last two. All Scripture is breathed out is god breathed and profitable for teaching reproof for correction for training in righteousness so that the man of god may be complete equipped for every good work so i want to go back and just kind of emphasize a few things in the grammar here Okay, it says all scripture is breathed out by God. Okay, is there any passage of scripture that we can point to that isn't breathed out by God, God the Holy Spirit? Answer, no. In fact, the Apostle Peter affirms this himself in his own epistle uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, where he says that uh, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, right? Uh, But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, here's the idea. God the Holy Spirit spoke the word, breathed the Bible into existence. All these men who who were the physical means by which God brought these texts into being, okay? God carried them along, inspired them to write these things, okay? So you want to know where God the Holy Spirit is working? It's in his word, plain and simple. But let me me, pay a little bit more close attention to the grammar here. All scripture, pasa grafe, okay, is theonoustos, is breathed out by God. And notice it says scripture, all of it's profitable for teaching. And and you can even say here, um, the uh, the didaskalion here is profitable for teaching. It's a perfectly legitimate translation to say that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine. That's, that's a legitimate translation, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete. It it doesn't say that, okay, this is a biblical text that argues for the complete, full sufficiency of Scripture. Um, And and that's what is going on here. The artios... Uh, fully qualified is what it says, so that the man of God may be fully qualified 
for and equipped for every good work. It doesn't say that, well, the man of God is only partially qualified, only partially equipped for every good work. But it says that all scripture being God breathed is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, so that the man of God may be fully qualified, fully equipped. Right? So this idea of somehow trying to drive a wedge between the work of God the Holy Spirit and doctrine, this is not taught in Scripture, nor is this taught in Revelation chapter 2. The, 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 the rebuke of our Lord Jesus Christ against the Ephesians was that they lost their first love, not that they loved doctrine more than they loved the Spirit. Okay? Scripture clearly teaches us that it's God that that you want to know where God the Holy Spirit is working. It's where His Word is being preached, taught, proclaimed. You can't separate the Word of God from the work of the God the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. In other words, when somebody is studying biblical doctrine, which is teaching, when somebody is studying biblical doctrine teaching. God, the Holy Spirit, is inextricably involved in the entire process. It's, it's, there is no dichotomy between biblical doctrine and the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, you can't have one without the other. It's impossible. I mean, yes, it's possible to have peanut butter without jelly, but I don't recommend it. But in this case, you can't pull the two apart because all of Scripture is breathed out by God, the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to back this up because, you know, obviously I want, I want you to hear it in context. But, I mean, something is just way off here. Number two, we can become like the Ephesians um, when we listen only to our doctrines and stop listening to the Holy Spirit. Um, I hear the Holy Spirit speak every single time. I hear sound biblical doctrine proclaimed. What can happen is you read the Bible so long in so many books and you're under so much teaching and education that all of a sudden you've got most of your questions answered and you've got all your verses and categories and all your systemization is essentially completed or at least functionally operative. And then all of a sudden you don't need to pray much anymore. Huh? <laughs> what? What are you talking about? <laughs> The longer I live, the more I study God's word, the more I see how all the different moving parts work in a good systematic dogs, dogmatics text. I mean, it really categorizes all of the different doctrines. It, it doesn't lead me to pray less. It <laughs> leads me to pray more. What are you talking about? Because you have a theology that tells you what to do. Oh, okay, yeah. Theology. Words about God. Yeah, my... Right. The Bible tells me what to do. You don't need to listen to the Holy Spirit anymore. I, huh? Again, how is it possible to read God's word without hearing the Holy Spirit? I, I, it's, again, it's not possible. This is a confusion of the work of the Holy Spirit. That somehow the, the Holy Spirit comes to me uh, without means and speaks directly into my heart. But the scriptures tell me that all scripture is God-breathed in order to make me fully equipped, completely equipped 
for every good work, not just some of them, but fully equipped for all of them. And since all of Scripture is God-breathed, it's impossible to hear God's Word preached with, correctly, that is, without hearing the God, the Holy Spirit, speaking. Because you have a theology that directs all of your steps. And I'm not saying that we avoid our doctrinal distinctives and our theological clarity, but we still need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We still need to be led by the Holy Spirit. We still um, I'm being led by the Holy Spirit every day when I open up God's Word. You need to listen to the Holy Spirit. I listen to the Holy Spirit every day and every Sunday when I hear God's Word preached. And we need to remain teachable. Um. And that's why one of the things that he says to each of the seven churches is, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Well, how are they going to hear that? Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, what is it that the Spirit says to the churches? Answer, it's written in the letters. <laughs> it's right there. John is not saying now, okay, I've written, you know, Jesus had me give you this letter. Now put the letter aside and sit really quietly and listen to the Spirit. That's not what he means. So when the, you know we've got that that re rejoinder in each of these letters, right? You know, let let those hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. What is it the Spirit has to say to the churches? Answer: It's there in the written words in the text. What he's saying is, you're not listening to the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit did inspire the writing of Scripture, and that is perfect, true, and good. But yeah, watch this. And the Holy Spirit is God, and He also dwells in the believer. And he will guide us in the truth, Jesus says in John's gospel. No, no, no. That is a misreading of the gospel, John. Let me back this up. I want you to hear what he's doing. He's driving a wedge between the work of the Holy Spirit and the preaching and hearing of God's word. You're not listening to the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit did inspire the writing of Scripture, and that is perfect, true, and good. And the Holy Spirit is God, and he also dwells in the believer. And he will guide us in the truth, Jesus says in John's gospel. No, that is a, that. See, that is a complete twisting of what John said in his gospel. Now, the the verse that he's referencing, ever so briefly in passing, by the way, is the uh, the Gospel of John, chapter sixteen, verse thirteen. Here's what it says: When the Spirit of Truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. That's all He said. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. By the way, that's not promising that that believers are going to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit in such a way that, that they need to listen to him and not doctrine. That's not what this passage says or implies. In fact, let's put it in context, and I, I'm, we're gonna, then we're going to employ uh, the uh, hermeneutic, uh, the hermeneutical technique of Scripture interpreting Scripture, the idea that Clear passages govern unclear. And technically, this is part, this is later in the text than John 14. And Jesus here is referring back to something he said earlier, and he said clear. So the idea is the clear passages govern the unclear. So let me back this, uh, back this up just a little bit. Okay. Gospel of John chapter 16. I'll start at verse five. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin 
and and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this age is judged. So you notice that the helper is going to come and convict the world of sin and unbelief. Okay, So this is talking about the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, I'm going to point this out. Okay, He is not saying here that the, the Holy Spirit is going to come and give all believers new revelation or anything like that. That's not what's going on here. And so we're going to apply the biblical hermeneutical technique known as Scripture interprets Scripture. What's going on here? Now, if you have a good Bible that has cross-references, a good study Bible, then you'll, you'll look over in your notes and you'll notice that this passage has a direct cross-reference back to first, uh, sorry, John chapter 14, verse 26. Clear passages govern unclear. So let's flip on over to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 26. Here's what it says. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Ha, you see that? Okay. He will guide you into all truth. But when the Holy Spirit comes, the Helper, he will, he will, <laughs> he, uh, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. What Jesus is promising here. This is kind of a reiteration of a point that he made earlier to the, the the apostles, is about the Holy Spirit guiding them and teaching them and bringing them into all things, recalling to mind what it is that Jesus taught them when he was here on earth and helping them understand it. In fact, let me, it, from the Lutheran Study Bible, okay, the note on John chapter 16, verse 13, okay, Guide um, from uh, to lead as a, as a traveler. Guide things that are to come. This is not a promise of new revelations, but rather that the disciples would understand how Christ's death and resurrection applied to the church after Pentecost. The Spirit will lead believers into a clearer understanding of God's truth as they make their way into the future. That's what's going on here, and so and so you got to understand that Blackaby's misuse of of his passage of uh, John 14, 26 applies. So I, I wrote a blog post. It's at letterofmark.us, and here's what it's – it's dated five uh, uh, May 4th, 2012. Yeah, I understand it's Star Wars Day, but I'll have to put that geeky, geeky part of me aside, even though I do remember going and seeing the original Star Wars movie in, in Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood back when I was a kid. Anyway um, – Another topic. So the the name of the blog post, and you can find this at letterofmark.us, L-E-T-T-E-R-O-F-M-A-R-Q-U-E dot U-S. Here's what it says. John 14, 26 is not a promise that the Holy Spirit will speak in your heart. Quoted out of context by most, a lot of evangelical pastors and mystics, they misquote this passage to say, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. However, that's out of context. John 14.26 is often cited by evangelical pastors and mystics as a proof text that God the Holy Spirit will speak directly into their hearts and teach and guide their lives. But when we apply the three primary rules for sound biblical hermeneutics, 
one, context, two, context, and three, context, we find that John 14, 26 is being misused by these pastors and mystics. Here's the verse with the immediate context put back in place. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So I bolded and underlined underlined the remainder of the sentence that these pastors and mystics omit. The part that says, and bring to your remembrance all they have said to you. Note that it says, and bring to your remembrance all they have said to you. When that is added back into the sentence, it becomes clear that Jesus is not promising all believers that the Holy Spirit will speak directly into their hearts and mystically teach them things that are not found in the Scripture. Instead, in this verse, Jesus is promising his disciples the Holy Spirit who would miraculously enable them to remember all that Jesus had taught them while he was with them during his earthly ministry. Bible commentator Lenski notes, quote, We see the fulfillment of this promise in the apostolic epistles and in the hearts and minds of all who, like the 3,000 at Pentecost, quote, continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine or teaching. This teaching was to a great extent immediate in the case of the apostles. For others, that'd be you and me, it's mediate. That means the medium being the apostles whose words form the foundation of the church. See Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20. So the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Paul Kretzman commenting on this passage said, quote, He had spoken many things to him during his ministry, and especially in the last days, whose importance and significance they had not grasped. Therefore, that same comfort of the Holy Ghost, whom the Father would send in his name, would serve as their teacher, giving them the understanding of all the things which they still had in their memory, and recalling to their minds such things as they had forgotten. Note, the Father sends the Spirit, but in the same, but in the name of Jesus, the same intimate relationship between the Father and the Son again appears because Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God and is acting as the advocate of mankind with the Father. For that reason, the Spirit is sent in his name. That was the assurance which comforted and encouraged the apostles and which serves also for our comfort. For with such a promise to back them up in their teaching, we know that the apostles could not fail in their proclamation of the great truths of God. We may rely without the slightest hesitation and doubt upon the words that were written by the apostles or under their direction, knowing that it was God the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Father and the Son, that directed and inspired them. In other words, that's a close quote, by the way, in other words, Jesus in this passage is not comforting us with the notion that the Holy Spirit is going to speak directly into our hearts. Instead, he's comforting us with the certainty that comes from knowing that we can trust that his teachings, Jesus' teachings, have been faithfully recorded for us in the apostolic writings found in the New Testament. Jesus isn't here sending us inward 
to hear his voice, but instead is sending us to his apostles and what they've recorded for us. Jesus is here promising inerrant inspiration of their teaching through the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. So knowing that, we can trust the writing of the apostles gives us true comfort and assurance. See the difference? There is a difference that is night and day. And here in this in this video teaching that was recorded, you know, at the front of the library in Ephesus, in the city of Ephesus itself, Mark Driscoll's doing violence to this concept by somehow driving a wedge between the work of the Holy Spirit and doctrine. Doctrine, by the way, simply means teaching. And when we talk about teaching, you, you, you know, there's there's doctrine as it pertains to politics. There's doctrine as it pertains to science. There's doctrine as it pertains to bicycle repair. But it's not just any doctrine we're talking about. When we talk about biblical doctrine, okay, it's impossible. Again, I, I quote 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, so that the man of God may be fully equipped, not partially but fully equipped, right? The scriptures do not teach that we're to listen to the Holy Spirit inside of our heart. John 16, 13 is not teaching that. Uh, the cross-reference, the clear passage that governs how we understand John 16 is John 14, 26. That is clearly not teaching that we're to look inside of our hearts and somehow be thinking, okay, I, I need to stop putting so much emphasis on doctrine, and I need to listen to the Holy Spirit. Again, the Bible knows of no separation like this, and that's not what Jesus is driving at in his letter to the Ephesians in, that's recorded for us in Revelation 2. Instead, the idea here is this. you When you study sound doctrine, God's Word, you are hearing God, the Holy Spirit, speaking. It's impossible for you not to. With that understanding, that's why it's so important that your pastor rightly handle God's word. Because Satan and his emissaries are at work trying to mangle, muddy, mystify, and boggle the uh, the message so that you're not hearing it correctly, so that God, the Holy Spirit's voice can be somehow thwarted thinking, really? Yeah, that's why apostasy is so bad. So, you know, let me back this up again. And again, the... And the Holy Spirit is God, and he also dwells in the believer, and he will guide us in the truth, Jesus says in John's gospel. That is not what he means by it. And what that means is he'll take the truth of the Bible and then use it to lead us, to shape us, to guide us, to inform us, and direct us. Okay, yes, use the truth of the Bible. Weird way of talking. But you can't live by the word of God without yielding to the spirit of God. Again, this is a false dichotomy. But it is possible. And there are, there are even certain theologies. One is called cessationism that essentially says that the Holy Spirit does not operate today like he once did. It's a clever way of saying we don't need him like we used to. I would basically say, do you really understand what the cessationists are saying? Cessationists are not saying that the Holy Spirit doesn't work or that we don't need him. 
Okay, I mean, I, I I would point to somebody like Michael Horton, and he would he would not he would say you you're not correctly representing his point. Okay, what it is that they believe? I mean, personally, I depend on the Holy Spirit every waking, breathing moment of my life. And when I'm opening God's word or it's being opened and preached to me, I am fully depending upon the Holy Spirit and I'm hearing the voice of the Spirit speaking. That's not true. We need him every moment of every day and every Christian always has. Right. We need him to lead us and guide us, convict us and instruct us. And right. And he does that through his word, through sound biblical doctrine there's no you can't separate the work of the holy spirit from sound biblical doctrine it's impossible again all scripture is god breathed all of it not part of it all of it and it's profitable to fully 100 percent equip the man of god for every good work plain and simple and one of the ways we can become like the ephesians is we get so consumed with our studies and our systematics that we forget that Jesus is alive and we're supposed to have a relationship with him and the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Again, I don't, I just don't see this dichotomy. And we're supposed to follow him. And so then, how are you to follow him if you don't know what he's said to do? Christianity goes from a relationship that we enjoy to a belief system we adhere to. Oh, brother. It's again, you're creating a false dichotomy. Christianity is both. It's not either or. It's both. The study of theology is how did the ancients talk about this? Oh, I know. They, they, <clears throat> hang on. I found this on my iPad. They call it a practical habit. This theology is called a practical habit. Yeah. Here, I, this is from uh, Schmidt's. Um, doctrinal theology of you know of of the Lutheran Church from the nineteenth uh, century, and uh, quoting Johann Gerhard, he says, "Theology viewed as a discipline and concretely is a divinely given discipline, bestowed upon man by the Holy Spirit through the Word, whereby he is not only instructed in the knowledge of divine mysteries." By the illumination of the mind, so that what he understands produces a salutary effect upon the disposition of his heart and the actions of his life, but so that he is also qualified to inform others concerning these divine mysteries and the way of salvation, and to vindicate heavenly truth from the aspersions of its foes, so that men abounding in true faith and good works are led in the kingdom of heaven." The idea is this, is that you create a false dichotomy when you put a wedge between the idea of doctrine and a relationship with God. The study of theology is a practical habit. It's a practical habit that informs us, transforms our hearts and minds, and produces good works in us. You, 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 oh man, Somebody who truly has a good relationship is one who abides in and guards God's word. This is what Jesus said. If you love me, you will guard my word. You, you understand the idea here. So, I mean, this idea that somehow a relationship with Jesus is different than or somehow separate from 
or in a different category than the study of doctrine and God's word. That's ridiculous. That is ridiculous. I mean, seriously, that's like saying that bodies can exist without a soul. That, that, that thing doesn't exist. Those will be called zombies, and those are fictitious. But you understand what I'm saying here. I mean, what he's describing here is not what Revelation 2 is talking about. It's not what, the, what John was talking about in, in uh, John chapter 16 or in John 14. You, again, all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable for doctrine, correction, teaching, training, so that the man of God may be fully equipped, not partially, fully equipped. You cannot separate the work of God the Holy Spirit from the reading, preaching, and studying and understanding of his word. And it teaches you right doctrine as well as right actions. It's both. The two go hand in hand, and you can't separate the two. It is a dangerous way to talk. When you talk about the work of the Holy Spirit as different from or separate from really understanding and digging into his word. Because the word of God is God-breathed. You understand what I'm saying? So anyway, what we're going to do right now, I told you it was going to be a slightly different edition of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to uh, take our first break. And it's actually, you know, technically our, we're going to come back and I'm going to play a lecture, a pretty long lecture on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit uh, presented by uh, the Reverend Ernie Lastman of Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington, that I hope will clear some of this up. But Again, this this is this is wrong-headed and this is not correct. This is wrong-headed and correct. You want to hear God the Holy Spirit speak? You open up the word. Because God the Holy Spirit is inextricably connected to his word. And his word is there to fully equip the man of God, not partially. All right, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. need to rethink Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. 
drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith, cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. You spend some serious time staring at a digital screen, probably around eight hours a day. There's work, video games, surfing the web, and every other function of life on all our devices. Hey, we live in an age where everything is digital. It's just par for the course, right? But have you ever thought about the impact all that has on your eyes? All that screen time is going to affect your vision. Maybe now, maybe later, but it's gonna happen. We're talking everything from eye fatigue and headaches to eyes that are so dry and irritated they could make even the techiest dude alive want to go analog. It's pretty hard to do the stuff you love if your eyes are feeling exhausted or burnt out. But it's not like less time in front of a screen is an option these days. So what do you do? It's like you need some crazy awesome invention that can help your eyes stay fresh and protect them so that you can get the most out of your digital consumption. Introducing Gunner Optics. Gunners are these super sweet computer glasses that make it easier and more comfortable to enjoy all your digital activities. There's seriously some NASA grade stuff going on here, but basically they have this uber smart lens technology that improves your visual experience, protects your vision, and helps prevent wear and tear on your eyes. Gunner's yellow lenses filter out harsh artificial light, which helps you see better, and they relax your eyes and stop them from straining constantly. Plus, they help combat all those other nasty side effects of staring at screens all day, like eye fatigue and dryness. Your eyes do a lot for you. Return the favor with Gunner's. For more information about Gunner's and to see a video with me wearing my pair of Gunner's, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunner's. That's G-U-N-N-A-R-S. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunner's. And thank you for your support. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website... PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. It's not quite hour number two yet. I told you today's edition of Fighting for the Faith was going to be slightly different.
Let's do this. here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon is not really a sermon. It's from the adult information class from Messiah Lutheran Church, Seattle, Washington, of the Reverend Ernie Lassman presiding. This is a full-blown teaching on the person and work of God, the Holy Spirit. Who he is what he does, and how he produces good works in a Christian. It's kind of lengthy, kind of long, well worth the listen. But the idea here is is you're not going to hear Ernie Lassman somehow driving a wedge between God the Holy Spirit and sound doctrine and God's Word. That's important to note. You can't do that. In fact, Ernie Lassman understands that God the Holy Spirit works through the means of his word in order to produce good works in the life of the Christian. And the idea is is that just claiming, well, I have a relationship with Jesus and that somehow I just, you know, skip over, ignore God's word to directly have a relationship with him. Yet the Bible doesn't teach this. Why Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep, you will guard my word. That's why God's word is living and active. That's why God's word is sufficient to equip the man of God for every, not some or most, but every good work. You understand what I'm saying? Anyway, let me kill the music here. So without any further ado, here is uh, the Reverend Ernie Lassman. Messiah Lutheran Church, Seattle, Washington, and his lecture entitled, The Holy Spirit, Who He Is and What He Does. Here we go. Okay, uh, let's, uh, let's change gears then. Let's turn over to uh, lesson number eight. Again, I'll, I'll, I'll preface my uh, uh, introductions with uh, apologies if I go too, too fast or something. Uh, as usual, I have just a whole bunch of good stuff to give you tonight. And uh, I always have that tension of getting in everything I'd like to get and doing it before 9 o'clock so you can get home at a decent time. So again, bear with me. Uh, be patient with me, but don't be afraid to ask questions. And I'll do the best I can. If it's a little bit uh, long answer, maybe we can do it after the lesson or another time. So then, uh, we have uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to be talking about tonight are, are three basic things that let you know where we're going tonight. Number one, how do we receive faith in Jesus Christ? Okay. Number two, number two, yeah, that's what we're gonna, well, I'm sure that was a rhetorical question. Yeah, uh, yeah, sorry. How do we receive faith in Jesus Christ? Number two, we're going to talk about good works. What is a good work, biblically speaking? And number three, why aren't all people saved? Now, that's what we're going to be basically talking about tonight. So, uh, in order to, to answer that last one, why are some people saved and others not? That means we have to get there before nine, right? <laughs> okay, why do they always put the tough ones at the end of the lesson? I never have understood. But anyway, 
The other thing I want to tell you about, I want to remind you, because um, I have to remind myself all the time, and I'm in theology all the time, and uh, so I want to constantly remind you. I'm going to tell you some things tonight, as I have already in the past, that are going to be difficult for you intellectually. You've already discovered some teachings that are difficult intellectually. So I'm warning you ahead of this, of time, and I'm going to remind you uh, that is, if you agree with me, what I taught you in lesson number one, that the only authority in the church is the Bible. Not our human reason, not our feelings, but the Bible. And so all I'm going to do tonight is when we hit one of those difficult things intellectually, which I don't understand any better than you, I hope that you'll simply see, with all the Bible passages I'll give you, that you'll believe what the Bible says, even if you don't fully understand it. Okay? Okay, so here we go. Number one, to know our Savior, remember that means to have a relationship with Him. We need the Holy Spirit. Well, would you circle? Now notice he starts off with this idea of a relationship with Jesus and the need for a Holy Spirit. So it's important to note right at the beginning of this, Ernie Lastman isn't contradicting the, the idea of a relationship with Jesus He's affirming it and affirming our need to have the Holy Spirit to have that relationship. So we got real common ground here, but you'll see where things deviate from what Mark Driscoll's saying or what a lot of evangelical pastors would say as the lecture develops. Underline the word need because we're going to emphasize that point in just a little bit, like why do we need him? But first, before we do that, would you circle or highlight or emphasize the word who? Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, it's going to be very simple, hopefully. He's the third person of the triune God. So we look at Matthew 28, 19, which is right in question number one. You've seen this Bible passage before, especially under the teaching of the Trinity. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in, remember this word? Circle the word or highlight the word name. And it's singular, isn't it? Remember? Of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is where in the distant past we talked about the mystery of the triune God. Remember? There's one God. And we've talked about God being Father and Son, also called by John the Word, and the Holy Spirit. So we're kind of just revisiting that whole lesson on the triune God. Remember the Father's not one-third God, He's all God. The Son's not one-third God, He's all God. And now tonight we're reminding ourselves the Holy Spirit is also God. Not one-third God, but all God, and yet there's only one God. That's the mystery of the Trinity. Now, uh, you remember, or maybe you don't, I'll remind you, some people, uh, like Jehovah Witnesses, for example, there may be others, um, uh, in, including uh, certain other sects or cults, that the Holy Spirit is not a person like the Father and Son, but He's a power. Sort of like in Star Wars, the Force be with you. And every good Lutheran always says, and also with you. <laughs> That's an inside joke. I don't know if everybody got that. But the Holy Spirit's not a power. The Holy Spirit is a personal being. He's God. So let's look just really quickly at a couple of Bible passages that tell us and remind us the Holy Spirit is not a power. He's a person. He's God. Okay? And one of them is right in your booklet here. It's the second Bible passage, Acts 5, 3, and 4. The person who's speaking in context is the Apostle Peter. 
And Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You've not lied to men, but to God. Point number one, you can't lie to an impersonal power, can you? For example, electricity. Electricity isn't a personal being, it's what? It's a power. You can't lie to electricity, can you? Well, if you can lie to the Holy Spirit, that means the Holy Spirit is a personal being, right? The Father and the Son. And then right in the text there, that's what Peter says, when you lied to the Holy Spirit, Ananias, you lied to? You lied to God. Now, I'm going to give you two other passages to save time. I'm not going to look them up, but I'll tell you what they talk about, and you can look them up on your own. Some of you may already know them. Uh, you can write this out to the left of uh, point number one. The first Bible passage is Ephesians, E-P-H, if you want to abbreviate it, E-P-H, 4.30. Some of you may know this passage, but Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't make the Holy Spirit sad. Well, you can't do that to an impersonal power. To make the Holy Spirit sad means the Holy Spirit is a personal being, just like the Father and the Son. Okay? Another one for you is, um, uh, whoops, the place here. The other one is John 16, 30, which we may see a little bit later on tonight. John 16, 30, and there Jesus promises the apostles the Holy Spirit would lead them or teach them all truth. Well, impersonal being doesn't lead or teach. So again, we see the Holy Spirit is a personal being, third person of the triune God, equal to the Father and the Son. Okay, so from all these passages, we learn the Holy Spirit is a person, personable being of the Holy Trinity. He's God. Now, before I move on too quickly, to me, that's pretty straightforward. But any problem, issue, question, just on the first point that the Holy Spirit is God. That's all we're trying to say right now. Shouldn't be too much new on that point. Okay, <clears throat> and that's sort of your, your one handout that, uh, that you saw on, on this one, the Holy Spirit being God. All right, uh, number two then. Before his ascension into heaven, now here's where he ascends into heaven. Okay? That's where we are, right there. Before he ascends into heaven, Christ promised his disciples that he would send them the Holy Spirit. And Clarence asked a very good question, and you'll see this as we look up all the Bible passages. They already had the Holy Spirit in terms of believing in Jesus, but he's going to give them the Holy Spirit to equip them to be the apostles of the church, as we're going to see. Okay, So it's a good question, Clarence. So what happened on the day of Pentecost? Now, would you highlight the word Pentecost? And before we look at those, I want to show you the Bible passages, because you may not be aware of them, where Jesus gives the promise. Okay, So right to the left of the question, number two, write these passages down. We'll look them up very quickly. They're all in the Gospel of John. John 15, verse 26 and 27. And John 16, 14. So I want you to see the promise that's going to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Now the reason this whole section is important, this is in the section of Jesus knows what's going to happen to him. He knows he's going to be crucified. He knows everything that's going to happen. And he knows that he's going to have a short time with the disciples after the resurrection. So he's telling them what's going to happen. And he's preparing them for the events to come. John 15, 26, 27. Here we go. 
When the counselor comes, that's the Holy Spirit. By the way, another example that the Holy Spirit can't be a power if he's going to give you counsel, right? When the counselor comes, also sometimes referred to as the comforter, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of what? Truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. We'll come back to that point later. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So here's the promise he's going to send the Holy Spirit, right? Now go over to chapter 16. Well, let's start at 12. Let's put a little bit more in the context. 12 and following. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Again, a personal being. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. Now let me explain that to you real quick. See, if you don't understand the Trinity, none of this makes sense. Watch this up here just for a moment on the whiteboard. The Holy Spirit's going to come to the disciples, and he's going to tell the disciples what he hears. Do you understand what I'm saying? In the Godhead, with the Father and the Son. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking what's mine and making it known to you, etc., etc., etc. Okay. So there's the, the basic promise that you see. So now, let's look at our biblical text in question number two in our green booklet. When the day of Pentecost had come. Now this is going to be real important. Above the word Pentecost, write this Bible reference. We're not going to look it up, but I'll just tell you what it says. Leviticus, L-E-V, 2316. Now, Pentecost was a Jewish holiday, as I already told you. Now, all this starts to come alive, and I hope by the time I'm done, the next five minutes or so, you're all going to go, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense. Pentecost, are you ready? Was a Jewish harvest festival. Anybody know where we're going to go with this? An old song bringing in the sheaves you'll see where i'm going to go with this it was a harvest festival okay so when the day of pentecost come jewish holiday a harvest festival in the jewish calendar they were all together in one place who's all together in the context the 12 apostles and suddenly a sound came from heaven like the rush of what a mighty wind now notice here nothing blew there was only the what the sound now, the reason the sound is because what's go who's going to come? The Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but at one point, I think I told you in a distant lesson, in the Hebrew and the Greek, the word for wind, breath, and spirit are all the same. So when they heard the sound of the... Guess who's coming? Holy Spirit. Okay, so they did just the sound of a wind came from here like the rush of a mighty wind. And it, what's the it? The sound. The sound of a mighty wind filled the house where they're sitting. And there appeared to them a tongues of fire distributed on each one of them. Something like this. Let's do this. So here's the apostles. They're in this room. They hear this sound. And then... A tongue of fire above them. Now you see where I'm going to go with this in just a little bit. I'm kind of patching it all together. What do you do with a tongue? You speak. Exactly. Okay. See what happens here. So tongues of fire were distributed on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay. 
And they began to what? Speak. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, uh, uh, you might want to uh, highlight or underline the word other tongues. Uh, I don't have time to go into detail about speaking in tongues and things like that. I, I know all about that. I've studied it lots, and I know lots of people still think people speak in tongues, uh, but many people also question where this happens anymore. Be that as it may, there's, there's no question here in Acts, in contrast, if you know your Bible, in contrast to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, these are human tongues. How do I know that? Because if we were to look up the context here, if we look up the context, they're speaking a human language that human beings could understand. Because let me, how do we know that? People, Jewish people from all over the Roman Empire were in Jerusalem. For what? The Jewish holiday of Pentecost. Okay? And believe it or not, Jews in the rest of the part of the empire couldn't speak the, the language of the Bible, Hebrew. Remember, that's why way back in our lesson on the Bible, they had to translate the Hebrew into the Greek, which I call the Septuagint. Okay. So they heard then, all these Jews from all these different countries heard the apostles speaking to them in their very own language, a human language. Okay. Now, here's the point. Some, some well-meaning people want to use this passage as for speaking in tongues and all those things. No, 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 no. This is evangelism. This is witnessing. What did Jesus tell him to do? Go and make disciples. He didn't say go speak in tongues. He said go make disciples. How do you do that? Baptizing and teaching. Right? And what did I tell you Pentecost was? It was a harvest festival. Now the harvest is going to begin. Because now, beginning on Pentecost, what's going to go out into all the world and has been for 2,000 years now? The gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm doing exactly what the, what the apostles did on Pentecost. I'm preaching and teaching about Jesus Christ, right? So, he's to witness. Now, let's look up, would you look, uh, right after that Bible passage, write um, Acts 1-8, so you can see this, because there's so many passages that make this so clear. But you will receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Power to do what? And you'll be my witnesses, preaching and teaching about me, okay? By the way, if you want to know about these are human languages, look in chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. Okay, now here's the other thing I want to say, and i got to move on as I watch the clock. The significance of Pentecost. You ready? It's the birthday of the New Testament church. In other words, if you were looking for a dividing line between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it wouldn't be Matthew. Where is the dividing line between the Old Testament and the New Testament? And it's Pentecost. Because Jesus Christ now has done everything necessary, hasn't he? Remember on the cross he said, it is finished. Everything's now a done deal. There's only one thing left now. Get the word out. Okay. So this is the birthday. I'm being a little silly. I hope I'm not being irreverent, but kind of watch this. It's the birthday of the New Testament church, and we even have candles. It's the birth, this is the, this is the beginning of the New Testament era that we're still in, Pentecost. 
bringing in the sheep, preaching the gospel. And we're told, well, let's look. Let's see. Uh, let's do this. From this we learn. Then i got to move on. From this we learn the ascended Christ fulfilled his promise, poured out the Holy Spirit on the disciples. On the same day, Peter preached to the vast crowd and gathered about the disciples. And how many people were added? Bringing in the sheep. 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, write down these passages very quickly. We're going to run through them very quickly to show my point that, that this is all about evangelism and missions. Here we go. Ready? And these are all in Acts. So I'm going to give you the chapter and the verse. And we'll go kind of quick. Ready? Here we go. All in Acts. 1, verse 8. 2, verse 41. 2, verse 47. 5, verse 25. 12, verse 24. 16, verse 5. 19, verse 20. 28, verse 23. Okay, now we're going to do this real quick because I just want to make my point and we got we got to move on. But remember, I'm telling you, Pentecost is all about getting the word out about Jesus, evangelism, missions. So let's turn to Acts and you'll see this real quickly. Here we go. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay, go to chapter 2, verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Go to verse 47. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Okay? Go to chapter 5, 25. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. Go to 12, 24. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. Go to 16.5. And of course, I'm leaving a lot out. Some of you know there are missionary journeys all through here. 16.5. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. Go to 19.20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And 28.23, which I always joke, the book of Acts ends with Paul's adult information class. <laughs> in 28.23, they arranged to meet with Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying from morning till evening. He explained and declared to them the kingdom of God. See, I only have you for two hours. Don't you feel better already? And tried to convince them about Jesus and the law of Moses from the prophets, etc. The whole book of Acts. And it all started when? On the day of Pentecost. Bringing in the sheaves. All about preaching and teaching about Jesus Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit, as we're going to see more and more. Okay, well, let's move on uh, so I don't get too far behind. Well, number three, well, where's the Holy Spirit in all this? What vital work does the Holy Spirit perform in people? We're going to look at lots of passages, but we've got some in our book here. Acts 16.31. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. If you know your Bible a bit, he's speaking to the Philippian jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And thou shalt be saved. Okay? In other words, that's the invitation to believe in Christ, isn't it? Now, we go to 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by what? The Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to give you lots of Bible passages, but let me tell you where we're going with this. No one can believe in Jesus Christ unless the Holy Spirit gives them the faith to believe in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to show you the Bible passages that prove that, and then after that, I'm going to show you how the Holy Spirit gives people faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? All right. Uh, let's look at a couple of passages uh, in the book of Acts. So Acts 13, 48, Acts 16, 13 and 14, and Acts 18, 27. That'll have to do for now. And as I say, if I get done a little earlier, I'll go back and give you more passages. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now, hang in there, because I'm going to address that whole question at the end of the lesson, which means we have to get done before 9 o'clock, right? So I can get that all in a timely way. In other words... According to that Bible passage, forget your human reason for a minute. Just forget your human reason. According to the Bible passage, why did they believe? What does the Bible passage say? They were appointed to believe. Okay? Go to Acts 16, 13 and 14. Now bear with me because I'm going to address the question you're already thinking about before we get done. But you just have to bear with me. Acts 16... Thir uh, 13 and 14. Okay, here we go. On the Sabbath, we went outside to the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to what? Speak. And what do you think they were speaking? The gospel. To the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. Let me explain that. A worshiper of God is not a Christian. In the New Testament, a worshiper of God is a pagan okay, who affiliated themselves with the Jewish people. Okay? The, and now watch, here's the point. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Okay, so she responded to the gospel. She believed, right? According to that passage, why did she respond? The Lord opened her heart to do that, right? Okay, the Lord opened her heart to do that. Okay, go to Acts 18, 27. Acts 18, 27. You see what I mean about human reason versus just what the Bible says. It's not always easy. Acts 18, 27 says, When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. Okay? Now, uh, to kind of tie this together, uh, would you go to uh, back to John 16, and then we have to move on, verse 8 and 14. Because when I, and you're going to see this, because what I'm telling you is, who is it that brings people to faith in Jesus? The Holy Spirit. Now, let's look at what it says. John 16, 8. When the Spirit comes, He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Okay? In other words, He does, does that through the preaching of the Law. He shows you your sin and your need for who? Jesus. Now go to verse 14. Verse 14. The Spirit will bring glory to what? Me, Jesus, by taking from His mind and making it known to you. What I want to say is this, and we've got to move on. The Holy Spirit does not glorify the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus because it is the function of the Holy Spirit, and which I does this in a minute, to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. That's his job, to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, well, let's go to number four. Here's a good question. Well, how come? Why can't we bring ourselves to faith in Jesus Christ? Ah, now what we're going to review here to remind you, if you've been with me, okay, and remember, forget your reason for a minute. We're going to go back to the teaching of original. Oh, remember how I told you from lesson number one, I'm necessarily going to teach you about teachings that are individual in the Bible, but I'm going to try as much as I can to show you how all these teachings are what? All interconnected. You don't understand this teaching, you're going to get this teaching wrong. Or if you're teaching falsely on this teaching, this teaching will be wrong. Okay? So now we're back to remind ourselves about what the Bible says about original sin. And what did we learn about original sin? Here we go back to 1 Corinthians 2.14. The great apostle Paul, the unspiritual man. And remember, every human being born is an unspiritual man, right? The unspiritual man simply cannot accept the matters which the Spirit deals with. They just don't make sense to him. For after all, you have to be spiritual to see spiritual things. Now, right there, if you don't understand that passage, that means you can't believe in Jesus on your own. Let me give you a silly illustration. It's like, uh, it's like I'm visiting with someone who's a really nice person, and I've been talking with them about Jesus, and they say something like, you know, Pastor Lastman, you seem like a nice person. I know you're really sincere in your faith and everything, and I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I'm sorry. It just doesn't make sense to me because some Jewish carpenter was crucified 2,000 years by the Roman Empire that you say all these wonderful things. That just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, that's what Paul says. That's the natural response of every human being. It doesn't make any sense. Now, why not? Well, let's look at our next Bible passage. Why, why not? Ephesians 2, 1, you were what? Dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, remember, dead can be used in three ways in the Bible. Physically dead, spiritually dead, eternally dead. Well, it can't mean physically dead in the context, right? Because he's writing a letter to him. It can't mean eternal death because that has not yet happened. So it means before you became a Christian, you were spiritually dead. Now watch this, and you'll see where I'm going with this. I think I've used this before. Remember, we have the dead body up here. I say, I'm going to Starbucks. You want a triple tall or a double short latte? And you all laugh because the body is dead. It can't what? Can't respond. Now watch what I do. Pretend I'm talking to that same person, okay, about who doesn't believe this Jesus stuff. Okay? But instead of this dead body... Think of this as a live human being who is spiritually dead. Are you with me? Well, believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You get the point? If he's spiritually dead, can he do that on his own power? If you're spiritually dead, you can't spiritually respond. That's, that's Paul's first point there. Spir See, this is the real testing ground whether a person really believes the Bible or not. We can say all these wonderful things about original sin until it doesn't fit in with our preconceived ideas and all of a sudden we want to revisit it okay well how about Romans 8 7 the fleshly mind what hates God now remember this is original sin let's do a little quick review here that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that every non-christian is a mean rotten nasty person I, lo I know lots of non-christians that are very nice people well, then what does it mean that the very nice non-Christian hates God? They hate God in the sense they're not living for God. They're living for self. And when the offer of Jesus comes, they say, mm, no thanks. Well, would that not be a great insult to God? I mean, think about it. 
assuming that what I've taught you so far is all true, if God sent his son to be brutalized on the cross and to be forsaken of God for the sins of the world, and you say, eh, no, I'm not interested, thank you very much. That's hating God. That's despising God. Okay, and then Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved. I hope everybody understands by grace. Grace is unmerited, unmerited love or favor. By grace you have been saved, how? Through faith. And look at what he says. This faith isn't even your own. This faith isn't even your own doing, but it's the gift of God. Not because it works, lest any man can boast. Now, uh, we'll talk about faith in lesson number nine a little bit more detail. So just be patient with me now. But we'll do more in lesson number nine on justification about faith. But a lot of evangelical Christians and maybe others too really misunderstand faith in relationship to Jesus and salvation. Okay? And what I mean by that is we don't, we don't get salvation because we believe in Jesus. Jesus is our salvation. Some people turn faith into something I do. You know, I made a decision for Jesus. And you didn't. That's too bad. And this is where sometimes, and I don't know if you've been in the church long enough or can relate to this, that's why sometimes Christians can come off sounding a little sanctimonious and holier than thou towards non-Christians. Why? Well, because I did something you haven't done. I, I believed in Jesus. No, 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 no. If you got it by grace, you can't boast, can you? Which we're going to talk about. Okay? And we're going to talk more about faith in lesson number nine because this is very confusing and I'll try to get it straight for you. Please. Where does um, free will... Well, let me get to that. There is no free will in spiritual matters. Oh, let's say it right now. There is no free will in spiritual matters. If you're dead, do you have any free will? That's my point. Yeah, I say, you want a double or a triple? Or believe in Jesus. You can resist the Holy Spirit, as we're going to see. But if you have faith in Jesus Christ, it's not your doing. It's the Holy Spirit's doing. Yep. But if you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, it's your fault. Then it's your own fault. Yeah, which I'll get to. That's part of the mystery. We're, we're, that's part of the, I know you're all thinking about it. We're going to get there. That's part of the mystery. And towards the end of the class, assuming I get done before 9, I do have an answer for you. I do have an answer for you. You may not like it intellectually. But I do have an answer for you. But we have to get there. Yeah, but you're, you're, you see where we're going. By the way, just to give you a little hint of where we're going here, okay, because we are going to talk about the new birth and new life. What did you have to say about your physical birth into this world? Did you have any say about whether you wanted to come into this world of sin and death? Well, that doesn't seem fair, does it? Why didn't God ask me whether I wanted to come into this world or not? You see where I'm going with this? Yes. Okay. You know what that's Yeah, please. That is so good. Yeah, yeah okay. It's a universal thing. It is. I didn't ask to be here. <laughs> exactly. And yet, and yet life itself, when it's properly understood, is a gift, isn't it? It's a precious gift. We know that. Well, there's no doubt in my mind, and we'll get there eventually, that's why no doubt the New Testament talks about conversion to Jesus in terms of new birth and new life and being born again because it's all grace stuff, just like in the physical realm. Okay. All right. Well, we'll get there. All right. Um, so, top of the next page. From this we learn we are by nature, remember? 
Uh, not popular teaching, but it is. We're, we're born to this world spiritually blind and dead. That's why I think Amazing Grace is such a popular Christian hymn. Once I was blind, but now I see. And how'd that come about? Because of Amazing Grace. Okay. Uh, and enemies of God, therefore, cannot bring ourselves to faith in Christ or even help along in doing so. Okay, now this is very important. Number five. You might want to circle the word how. How does the Holy Spirit do it? How does it give people faith in Jesus Christ? And you're not going to be surprised by anything. Okay. But I want you to look up the first Bible passage in the Bible because I want you to see verse 13 as well as verse 14. Remember all the T's come together in the New Testament. So you have 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. And we want 2nd Thessalonians 2. So if you can find any one of the T's, <laughs> you can find the other because they all come together. Now let's watch this, these wonderful verses. But... We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord. Now, let me, I'm going to get, sometimes I get silly just to make points. Okay, here's my point. He doesn't say, golly, gee whiz, we're so glad you made a decision for Jesus. Is that what he says? We ought always thank who? God, for you. What does he mean? As a Christian, what's the implication? You're a Christian because of God, and we thank God for your faith being a Christian. Okay. We always thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning you made a decision for Jesus. No, it's not what it says, is it? What does it say? God. From the beginning, God chose you to be saved. Ah, now here comes the Holy Spirit. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, through belief in the truth. Now, verse 14 tells you what truth he's talking about. He called you to this through our what? Our the gospel, see? You see how it's starting to all fit together? Now we're back to Pentecost and bringing in the sheaves. And this is why the Holy Spirit has been given to the church as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guess who's working through that gospel on the hearts and minds of people to bring them to, to, bring them to faith? Okay, we're not done. Let's go back to our green booklet. Revelation 22, 7, 17, excuse me, in our green booklet. The Spirit... And the bride. Ah, someone help us. Who's the bride? Church. Ah, the church. We're back to Pentecost again, right? Who is it that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ? The church. And who works through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The Spirit. And so, in this language here, the Spirit and the bride say, Come. This is the invitation of the gospel. Everyone here is say, Come. Come, whoever's thirsty. That means thirsty for what? Forgiveness and peace with God and eternal life and accept the water of life as a gift, whoever wants it. Now the next one's very clear as well. Romans by Paul 10, 17. Faith comes from what? Hearing, Hearing the message. Because who's working through the message? The Holy Spirit. Okay. Here's the point. The Holy Spirit is not present where Jesus isn't present. If Jesus is present, the Holy Spirit's present. Wherever you have the proclamation, the preaching and teaching of Jesus Christ, there's the Holy Spirit working through the Word to work on the hearts and minds of people, to give them the gift of faith. And the message comes through the preaching of Christ. Another one, Romans 1, 16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's what? 
The power of God for salvation. What's interesting here, I, I can never uh, resist this. The Greek word for power here is pronounced dunamis, and it gives us our English word dynamite. <laughs> because this is the word of God, right? For example, the powerful word of God. How did God create the whole world? The whole universe? With his word. word. Okay, now kind of getting back to your good point. In the physical realm, God created the whole world with his mighty word. And now we're learning through the gospel. God brings about new spiritual life through his mighty word. As the Holy Spirit works through that word. Now I'm going to give you a, 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 something on the board here in just a minute that I hope that will help. First let's do from this we learn, then I'll put it on the board. From these passages we learn, the Holy Spirit calls and invites people how? By the gospel. Wherever the message of Jesus Christ, whether you read about it, you hear it on the radio, you come to the adult information class, wherever, offering them all the blessings which Christ has earned for them. And the Holy Spirit, by the very same gospel, which is a living power, works acceptance of this invitation. Did you get that? In other words, he just doesn't offer it to you. He actually gives it to you, okay? which I'll explain in just a minute. In the hearts of people, bringing the faith in Christ. Now, let me say this because this does get complicated. And I'm going to give you more answers as we go along. Uh, and uh, I'll answer some of your questions. Some of them I can't answer some of your intellectual questions as we'll see, but I'll give you a lot. Here's the point. There's no question. Let me use me. I... Ernie Lastman, believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit's not uh, doing that. I'm doing that, right? Ah, now here comes, the, here comes the key question. Where did I get the power to believe in Jesus? And you only have a couple of answers here logically. One is, I did that all by myself. Which is a total denial of what teaching? Original sin. Now there's another one that's a little more sneaky. And I'm not going to go into all of them, but you find in Roman Catholic Church, among many evangelicals, fundamentalists, others, okay? Well, I didn't do it all by myself. I needed a little bit of what? Help. But God and I were what? It's like take team. We were working together. Sorry, that's subtle, but it's still denying of original sin. And if that's true, then God doesn't get all the glory, does it? He gets some of it, and of course, what? Well, I couldn't have done this without me unless I helped him a little bit, Right? And then there's the biblical answer. I got this ability to believe in Jesus, and I'm the one believing, that's true. I got the ability to believe in Jesus because the Holy Spirit gave me, by His grace, the ability to do that. It's just like how you were born into the world. You didn't have anything to do with that. That was a precious gift given to you, right? Now, why do you suppose... Why do you suppose people are so resistant to this teaching? Well, maybe there's some good answers and some bad answers. One of them that might be a good answer is they're afraid, which we'll talk about later. Can't do it all tonight. They're afraid that if you accept this teaching, somehow you're no longer, what? Accountable or something, right? Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. If my eternal destiny is going to depend on me or God, guess who I'm going to vote for? Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So, but people say, well, wait a minute now, you know, if, uh, you know, there's no free, uh, free, free rides here. If I got myself into trouble, I'll get myself out of trouble. You know, you got to pull yourself up, what? By the bootstraps here. That's the way the world thinks. It's not what the way the Bible thinks. A real simple way to say this, and I got to move on. I'm going to give you a picture here to help here. 
Real simple way to remember this, and I hope you'll remember what I'm saying every time you say the Lord's Prayer. Because at the end of the Lord's Prayer, you say, For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the... Except for... I did a little bit, though. Yeah. So you get, you get 99%, God. That's a lot. I'm just trying to take 1% here. Come on, give me a break. You know, I had to make a decision for Jesus. Now, I'm being silly to make a point. No, for thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory. Forever and ever, amen. Okay, now let me put a draw, diagram up here and see if this helps a little bit. And remember, I am telling you, no, let's use this one. I do have some answers for you. But I won't be able to answer all your intellectual objections. You just have to set that all aside and believe what the Bible says. What have I been teaching you? This is what I've been teaching so far. Here it is. Let's pretend, somehow or another, you have enough money to buy a nice country home. Let's say uh, 65 miles outside of Seattle. It's just lovely. Okay. Only problem is, because it's not highly developed out there, there's no natural water and sewer and all that. But, however, you have a natural well, let's say uh, 100 yards uh, from the house. Well, that's quite a ways, right? Here's your problem. You have a big gap in space between your, your water and your, your beautiful new home, right? So since there are no public services out there, what you do, you put in a pump house, right? And you run some pipes, you know, from your well water to your house. And these pipes become the means, the means, let me put this down here a little bit. The means of getting the water from here to here, right? It's the same with Jesus. That's where the whole world was saved. And the easiest way to remember that is one of the things he said on the cross. It is, there's nothing else to do. If you want to do something else, then you're spitting on the cross. You say, Jesus didn't do enough. i got to do something. Remember, and we'll talk about this more when we get to lesson number nine. But I've already mentioned this about objective justification. The sins of the whole world are already paid for. Whether a person knows that or a person believes that. They're already paid for it. It's an objective reality. Ah, but here's our problem. Here we are in 2006, right? Now, in this illustration with the house and the well, we had a huge gap in space. In this illustration, we have a huge gap in time, right? Time. How do we get, how do we get what Jesus won for us? We can't go back there, can we? The cross isn't there anymore. It wouldn't do us any good if it did. So how do we get what Jesus did for us? And the answer, you've already seen it, is in the, the gospel. And what I'll be teaching you starting tonight and in the next couple of weeks, the gospel comes to us in three different ways. Okay? The most obvious that we all know about is the, is the word. Okay? We've already seen that. And whenever this word is preached, guess who's present? The Holy Spirit to work on the hearts and minds of people to bring them to faith. Now what I'm going to show you in lesson number 10 okay, is he also does that through baptism. And when we get there, I'll show you all the passages. And the third way he does it is in the Lord's Supper. And I'll show you that when we get to that in lesson number 11. 
These three things, now let me back up. Remember these pipes were the means of getting the water from here to here? These three things are called in theology the means of grace. In other words, these are the spiritual pipes that the Holy Spirit comes to us to give us what Jesus has won for us. You take away these three pipes, there is no Jesus, and there is no Holy Spirit. So this is how he works. Wherever you have word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, there's the message of Jesus Christ. And if the message of Jesus Christ is there, which is the gospel, the Holy Spirit is there, because that's his job, to bring people and to give them uh, to faith. Okay? So that's how he does it. If I have a neighbor that I want to believe in Jesus, somebody's got to tell him about Jesus. Much less if you got somebody over in Asia someplace, or Brazil, right? if they want, they're going to believe in Jesus, somebody's got to tell them. Right? Holy Spirit's just going to zap them. Yeah, that's why that's so... And by the way, that's what Jesus said, right? Go and make disciples. Yeah? Which, which humanly speaking, humanly speaking, puts a little pressure on the church. Doesn't it? Are we doing our job? Is there a difference in hearing and reading the no. word? No. Okay. You can be brought to faith by reading the word. Okay. Yeah. Thank yeah. Thank you. Okay. Well, let's go on watching the clock here. See how we do here. Number six. Um, uh, the moment the Holy Spirit brings a person to faith. Now, watch the language again. Why does it say the moment who brings a person to faith? The Holy Spirit brings a person to faith in Christ. What happens? Well, just a couple of brief Bible passages. Ephesians 5, 8, the great apostle Paul. Once you were in what? Darkness. Yeah, that's amazing grace again. Once I was blind, right? but now you are in light. You see. Now, often in the Bible, darkness stands for uh, uh, sin, death, the devil, things like that. That's what darkness is. That's what a person is before they have faith in Christ. And then Christ comes, and some of you might remember the Bible passages. It's in John, uh, as uh, elsewhere. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Okay? It's, it's like when a person comes to faith in Christ, it's like, man, I see things all what? Differently. Okay, Ephesians 2, 5. He made us who were dead in sins alive in Christ. Wow. How, how much more clear do you get, Right? We were dead. That means uh, spiritually dead, right? And now we're alive in Christ. And who, who made the difference? That he refers to God. God made us who were spiritually dead alive in Christ. And how did he do that? Right there. Okay, First Peter 1 Peter 1.23, you were born again. Well, how were you born again? Not by a seed that perishes, but one that cannot perish. How were you born again? The Word of God. Remember, which is in Romans 1.16, because the Word of God is the dynamite of God, the power of God. The Holy Spirit works through there. Now let's make sure everybody understands born again, because some Christians use that differently. Some Christians refer to the phrase born again as something other than believing in Jesus. And that's wrong. Some people say, well, no, I know, bud, you believe in Jesus, but have you been born again? That's the wrong use of that biblical language. To be born again means nothing more than having faith in Jesus. You cannot have faith in Jesus and not be born again. 
So to be born again is to have faith in Jesus, and that's brought about by a powerful word of God again, as we see. Okay, 1 Peter 2.25, you were straying like what? Sheep, but now return to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. By the way, you know, whenever the Bible talks about us being sheep, I hope everybody understands that's not a compliment. Now, I'm not an expert on sheep, but I've read enough to know that sheep are really stupid. I've gotten that message very clear, right? And if you don't watch them constantly, what will they do? Wander off, right? Right? So the shepherd had to really watch them. Okay, although they'll go, go get in trouble and they'll be eaten up by some wolf someplace. So what do we learn from these passages? Coming to faith in Christ involves a miraculous change in a person. What does that mean? Well, he was spiritually blind. Now he sees. What does he see? He sees Christ as his precious Savior. Sees God himself, his fellow man, everything in a new what? A new light. He was dead in his sins. Now he lives. He's been born again into a life that is life. Well, what does that mean? Union with God, which kind of goes in with our little title of our book that we used earlier, that I may know him, have a relationship with him. He's a child of God. Regeneration, which is rebirth. He was turned away from God and hated him, living for self. Now he's turned towards God and loves him. That's conversion and wants to live for him. Well, number seven, how may I know whether I am converted? How do I know if I'm a Christian or not? Well, this is in Acts 16. The jailer, this is the Philippian jailer, if you know the story, called for a light, rushed in, and fell trembling at the feet of Paul and Silas. Let me say the story just in case somebody doesn't know it. Paul and Silas are in jail. Okay? And the Lord's going to deliver them from this by opening the, 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 the uh, jail doors and let them out. Okay? Well, the reason the, the Philippian jailer was so concerned, if you've seen uh, your Roman uh, uh, Empire uh, Saturday afternoon spectaculars, you know that any jailer who lost his prisoners, that's the price for losing your prisoners. And so this jailer is terrified. He's thinking now that Paul and Silas have fled, and now his life's going to be on the, on the line. So... He came and he came trembling at the feet of Paul and Silas, and then he led him out and asked, What must I do, sirs, to be saved? By the way, to make sense of this, they were singing hymns and everything and kind of witnessing. And he says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Okay. Now, the Philippian jailers going to get the ability to believe by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, let's see, what's our point then after, just turn to the next page. We know that we're a Christian if I'm sorry for my sins. You cannot be a Christian if you're not sorry for your sins. Because why did Jesus die on the cross? To die for our sins. To not to be sorry for something that Jesus had to die for, well, you're obviously not a Christian. Right? Yeah. So, to be sorry for my sins, because the whole blessing of Christianity is forgiveness. Well, if, you're not, if you don't want forgiveness, doesn't make any sense, does it? But that's not enough. There has to be more than feeling sorry for your sins. Classic illustration that's always used is Ju a Judas. If you know your Bible, was he sorry for his sin? Yep. Yeah. But according to the Bible, he wasn't saved. What did Judas do with his sin after his sin? He committed suicide. We well, say, well, what's the point? He didn't believe that what he did could be forgiven. See? Which is, right? 
denying the whole gospel. For example, you know the Apostle Peter did something bad too. Judas betrayed Jesus, but what did the Apostle Peter do? He denied him not once, but three times. And by the third time, Peter was cursing and swearing he didn't know this Jesus guy. Okay? But the difference with Judas and Peter, Peter didn't go out and hang himself. Peter went out and wept bitterly because he knew he sinned. But he believed he could be forgiven, which is our next point. Okay, So to be sorry for your sins but to also believe that whatever your sin may be is forgiven. And see, that's why this is so important here. Remember, I told you this is an objective reality. Even if you don't believe that you're forgiven, that's really sad because you are. That's why this cross is so important. For example, when I really feel bad about one of my sins, you know, what brings tears to my eyes and keeps me in faith is realizing this dumb, stupid sin that I've done again has already been paid for. And to not believe that would call God a liar and spit on the cross. All your sins, remember, are paid for. When you sin, God doesn't go, Ooh, I didn't know about that one. Gee, Jesus, we missed that one. He knows about all your sins your whole life. And they've all been paid for, canceled in full. And so it's to not only feel sorry for our sins, but to believe and forgive us. As a matter of fact, that's why Christians are so bold to confess their sins to God. And we're going to do this in a future lesson on confession. But number one, God already knows your sin, right? When you confess to Him, God doesn't say, Oh, well, thanks, Fred. I didn't know about that one. Yeah, thank you for confessing. He already knows it, doesn't He? And the other reason we're not afraid to confess our sins is because we know every time we forgive our sins in Jesus Christ, God will say what? I forgive you. I forgive you. I've paid for that. And that's in part what uh, Jesus means in Matthew 11 when he says, Come unto me, all you are weak and heavy laden with sin and guilt, and I will give you rest. He never turns us away. Yes? Can you speak just a little bit to like repetitive sins? Yes. Because, you know, I, I struggle with that. I always feel like I'm asking forgiveness for the same sins over and over yes. and over and over and over yes. again. And at some point it's like, well, yeah. you know, yes, I am truly really sorry that I am making those sins. Yeah. And I do truly feel right. sorry. For some reason they keep happening. Yes. So then yeah. you... no, it's a good question. It's a wonderful question. Point number one, we're all the same as you are. You're not alone. And anybody in here to say otherwise is lying. Okay, We're all in the same boat. Now, now listen very carefully. What I'm saying is I'm not trying to excuse what you and I do. That's not the point. Okay? But it is a reality. And we're going to talk about this in just a minute. So let me do it quick because we're going to get to it in just a minute. Here's the point. As long as you're fighting against this, Diana, and you know it's wrong, and you want God's forgiveness, and you're trying to make changes even if it's slow, you're a Christian. The only time you get in trouble is you say, and I'm really tired of this. I don't care what God does. This is just me. If he doesn't like it, too bad. That's not good. Hear the difference, though? And, and, and this is what we're always in, as I'm going to show you here in just a minute. So we're always in a little bit of anguish as Christians. I mean, how, how do you keep your sanity when each and every day you're trying to live a perfect life for God? And the only answer is forgiveness. So if you're in that struggle, you are spiritually alive. It's when that struggle stops that you're spiritually dead. 
So you are just like the rest of us, as we're going to see. Okay? Well, let's move on, watching the clock just a little bit then. What effect does the work of the Holy Spirit have on the life of a Christian? Which kind of Diana got us into a little bit here. 2 Corinthians 5.17, this is Paul. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Now let me be overly simplistic, but what that means is, as we're going to see, what that means is, now you no longer want to live for self. You want to live for God. That's being born again. You want to live for Jesus Christ. Romans uh, 16, at one time you were slaves to sin. But now you obey with all your heart the truths found in the teachings you received. You were set free from sin and became slaves of righteousness. Which, And again, Diana, we're going to see this. It doesn't mean we do it perfectly, but it means we want to do it perfectly. And it grieves us when we don't live not only how God wants us to live, but how even we want to live. So that's why we're slaves to righteousness. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship. Oh, we are his workmanship. Like, Did a cabinet build himself? No. And that's the same with your faith again. You got faith from the Holy Spirit, right? We are His workmanship, right? Created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Now, good works don't save us, remember. But if we have faith in Christ, what will we want to do? Just like Diana said, good works, okay? Uh, now, let's go from this we learned because I'm going to watch the clock just a little bit here. Uh, having been made a new person in Christ, the Holy Spirit gives the Christian power to live a new life. To overcome sin, which we'll talk about a lot even uh, in baptism again, chapter 10. To do good works. Now watch this, because here's Diana's question. This does not mean that the Christian while on this earth can reach perfection. No one reaches perfection. We have it in Philippians 3.12. This is the great apostle Paul. What does he say? I do not consider myself to have arrived spiritually. Nor do I consider myself already perfect. Okay? And then in 1 John 1, 8, if we say, and John is talking to Christians, John's talking to Christians, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Let's look at Romans 7 very quickly. Now, the language gets real confusing here. I'll try to read slowly, but uh, you, you'll get the point. Romans 7, 14 to 25. We know that the law, that means the Ten Commandments, the law of God, is spiritual. But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Now he's going to explain that in just a minute. Verse 15. I don't understand what I do. Do you feel like that sometimes, Diana? Me too. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Now here's the good point, Diana. He hates it. That shows he has spiritual what? Life, even though he doesn't always do it exactly right. And if I do what I do not want to do, well, I agree the law of God is good, don't I? Verse 17, as it is, now watch this, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's what? Sin living. Now this is what some Christians don't get. Some Christians think, once you become a Christian, oh boy. No. You have a struggle here now, don't you? And what this is, he's going to describe it in just a minute. It's our flesh. We still have our flesh. That's why you and I sometimes think and say and do things. And say, Boy, where'd that, where'd that come from? It's our flesh. Verse 18. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. And the Greek word there is flesh. Original sin. By the way, when we become Christians, our original sin is forgiven. But it doesn't go away. 
For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. <laughs> this sound familiar, Diana? This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. 21. So I find this law, and here it means principle, this principle at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, and it means as a Christian, as a Christian, I delight in God's law. Ah, verse 23. But I see another law, another principle at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So then I myself and my mind am a slave to God's law. Been the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. And let's go to verse 1 of chapter 8, which will bring us some comfort here. Therefore there is now what? You see, Diana, as you and I try to live a, a Christian life and know how we fall short, we keep coming back daily, confessing our sin to God, and he says, I know, I forgive you, I don't contend, condemn you for the sake of my son, and you just keep trying to live that life for me. Not because you're trying to have a, 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 a relationship with me, but because you already have a relationship with me. Okay? Okay, uh, let's do one other one that's not listed in your booklet. And then uh, we'll move on. i got to watch the time again, but I feel compelled to do this. So let's go to Galatians chapter um, 5, verse 16 through 18. And it's the same idea, just said in a different way. Ready? So I say, live by the Spirit. That's what we try to do. And you will not gratify the desires of... Now, can you hear overtones of Romans 7? For the sinful nature desires what is... Contrary to the spirit and the spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature? They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you're led by the spirit, you are not under the law, which is another way of saying there is no condemnation. Okay. So as long as we're engaged in this spiritual warfare internally as a child of God, we're accepted by God. But the moment we say, too bad, I, I, I don't care what God thinks, I'm going to do this. That's when we're in trouble. So actually, here's the point, and then i got to move on. If we have this kind of spiritual tension inside, that shows we have spiritual life and vitality. It's only when we lose that spiritual tension that we become spiritually dead. So actually, this anguish that we all feel, Diana, is actually a healthy spiritual sign because it keeps us under God's grace and forgiveness. Okay. Well, we got to move on. Uh, what I want to say is, uh, this is a very famous, famous saying that came out of uh, the Reformation, but we are a saint and a sinner at the very same time. In reality, in terms of how we actually live, we are a sinner because we're not perfect. But for the sake of Jesus Christ, we are God's dear, precious saints. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Okay, uh, question number nine. What are good works in the sight of God? I'm going to do this relatively quickly because I don't think there's any controversy here, but let me know if there is, and then we're going to get to why, aren't, why isn't everybody saved. So what's a good work in the sight of God? Now, point number one, remember, we're going to now define a good work in God's sight, not according to human standards, okay? Because according to human standards, you don't have to be a Christian to do a good work, do you? 
Non-Christians do all kinds of good stuff. So keep that in mind. We're not saying what's a good work by human definition, but by God's definition. Okay, so here we go. Galatians 5, 6, faith is active in love. And would you, uh, after that, write Romans 14, 23, and I'll just tell you what it says. Romans 14, 23. Uh, it says, uh, 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 anything not done in faith is sin. So what we're going to learn here is there's two, two things that we learn what, a, what is a good work here in God's sight. First of all, nobody can do a good work in God's sight unless they first have faith in Jesus Christ. Well, why is that? Because the only way to become acceptable to God is not by doing good things because you can never do enough good things. The only way you can be acceptable to God is by faith in Christ. And then after that, the good things you do are going to be accepted to, by Him because you are accepted by Him because of Christ. Okay, so faith in Christ and love. John fifteen five. Jesus says exactly the same thing I just said. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but in the Bible, much fruit means good works. Much fruit is good works. For apart from me, you can do what? Yeah, now that doesn't mean you can't go to Starbucks if you don't have faith in Jesus. He means you can't do anything spiritual. You can't do anything before God that's acceptable apart from Jesus Christ. Now what he's using is, let's play, pretend I have a vine here, a grapevine, okay, and a branch. Now this branch is going to be able to bear fruit because of its connection to the vine where it gets all of its nourishment, right? You cut that branch off of the, what happens to the branch? Shrivels up and doesn't bear fruit. That's what Jesus is saying. As long as you are united to me, As long as you're united to me, the Holy Spirit will be in your life and you'll bear much fruit. You'll do good works. Okay? John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So again, we see the idea of love and by commandments we mean doing, living according to whose will? God's will. Matthew 15, uh, 9, Their work is worthless for they teach their man-made laws instead of those from God. In other words, if someone tells you something, that you have to do something in order to do a good work in God's sight, and it's not something in the Bible, that's not a good work. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the what? The glory of God. And Galatians 5.13, let love make you serve what? One another. Now we put all those passages together, and if I go too fast, slow me down. But I don't think there's too much controversy here. What is a good work in God's sight? Good works in God's sight are all, now notice, thoughts, the inner life, thoughts, words and actions, which flow from faith in Jesus and love to God. So we're talking only about Christians, point A. B, conform to the will of God as expressed in the Ten Commandments, are to the glory of God and the benefit of our fellow man. Now, I'm not going to use a lot of Bible passages here. Let me say one thing and I'll open it up for you. Nobody does a perfect good work. Only Jesus did perfect. So you don't do perfect good work. I don't do perfect good works. In other words, even our best works are accepted by God because, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Okay? Jesus Christ. I, sometimes, I don't know if this is a good example or not, but maybe this will help a little bit. For example, when I'm preaching or teaching, you think, well, that's a good work. And it is, isn't it? 
in God's sight. It is a good word. But you know, there might be times that I'm thinking, uh, gee, I wonder, am I coming across okay? You think they really like me or not? Or gee, I, I bet I said that and they didn't like that. Or what, what's my point? That all, your motive isn't always, yeah, yeah, I might be thinking about how, me rather than the glory of God or something like that. Nobody does perfect good works. No Christian. Not Billy Graham, not the Pope, nobody. Yeah. Okay. But these are good works and even though they're not perfect, they're accepted. Because of Christ. Apart from Him. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, now I don't want to go too fast, but I don't think there's too much controversy there, but I do want to pause. Or any, any confusion or issue about a good work then in God's sight? Not human sight, but God's sight. Well, do you think we should worry about what we're doing if it's a good work in God's sight? You know, as a Christian, I might. Do something and uh, like helping a little old lady across the street right. or something. You right. know, I mean that's a good work. Yeah, yeah. But but the non-Christian do the same thing. And it's not a good work. That's correct. That's right, because you're doing it, and, and let's say this clearly, you're doing it because you're a Christian. And here's my point. I don't mean, Doug, you say, let's see, I'm a Christian. That means I'm supposed to help this little old lady. No, it doesn't work that way. Being a Christian is just part of who you are. And so you just help her without even what? Thinking, but you're doing that, Doug, even if it's unconscious, is because of your relationship to Christ. But the non-Christian, they're doing the same thing, but for different reasons, different motives, okay? and not accepted by Christ. So from a human standpoint, you're both doing a good work. From a biblical standpoint, only you are doing a good work because of Christ. Yes? Um, maybe I'm wrong, but like, when I do, like, when I do a deed, yeah. I do anything good. Mm -hmm. That, that's between me and Jesus, not between me and the world. But I shouldn't go out and try to ask this what I did for my own benefit. Oh, I see what you mean. If I'm tracking with you, in other words, yeah, the moment you start seeking your glory, yeah. it's not a good work anymore. <laughs> that was the problem with the Pharisees. That's what Jesus pointed out with the Pharisees. Pharisees, humanly speaking, did lots of good works. Humanly speaking, the Pharisees were the good people of society, but they all did it for self-glorification. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Okay, um, well, number 10, watching the clock. What does the Holy Spirit finally do for us? 1 Peter 1, 5, you are kept, you are guarded by the power of God through faith and salvation. Now, what do you think the power of God here is? I'm going to give you a hint. Romans 1, 16 and 17. What do you think the power of God is? You're close. What was Romans 1, 16 and 17 on the previous page? What's the dunamis? The gospel. When he's talking about the power of God here, he doesn't mean the power of God that made the universe. He means the gospel. Remember what we said? I think it was somebody over here. I can't remember. It's the gospel who brought you to faith in Christ, his power. And it's the gospel who's going to, or what's going to keep you in faith in Christ. And we'll hit this really hard in lesson 12 on the church, because what I'm going to show you in lesson 12 on the church, Sunday morning, Sunday morning, this is what we're gathered around. And this is how we stay in Jesus. This is how we're brought to faith in Jesus. This is how we stay in Jesus, as I'm going to show you in, in lesson number 12. Okay, so look at Philippians 1.6. This is Paul, I'm sure, he who what? Began a good work in you. And by the way, the good work here is faith. The good work is faith. He who began faith in you will bring it what? To the day of completion. In other words, God brought you to faith, and through the gospel, he'll 
keep you in faith. That's his promise to you. And look at 1 Thessalonians 2.13. The word of God is at work in you. Believers, the powerful gospel through which the spirit works is in you. Okay? Through the word. So you shouldn't be surprised that if the, it's the Holy Spirit through the gospel brings us to faith in Christ, it's the Holy Spirit through the gospel that keeps us in faith in Christ. And I'll hit that, like I say again, in lesson number 12. Let's go to number 11. We're running out of time. I have to do this fast. Uh, why is not everyone who hears the gospel brought to faith? Ooh, good question, right? Okay, put on your theological armor. <laughs> Because I do have an answer for you. But two things. It's not going to satisfy your intellect. I've told you that already. I've warned you. Okay? And it won't answer everything. But it is what the Bible says. And after I'm done, all I can do is rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Working through the Word. That you'll believe what the Bible says. Okay. Before we look at the passages... We can tell you about people being saved and people being damned. Okay? There's only logically three positions you can come to on this. Okay? One is if people are saved, it's God's doing. And if people are damned, it's God's doing. Okay? Another one can be if people are saved, it's man's doing, getting better, because they have free will. They made a decision for Jesus. You with me? Okay. And likewise, if they're damned, it's man's what? Fault. Ah, oh, I got another one. It's the biblical one. If people are saved, it's because of God. And if people are lost, it's their own fault. Now we're going to look at the Bible passages, but let me watch here. These two are very logical. I'm not saying whether you like them or not. Just looking at logic, just logic. Okay, it's this is law. If if people are God saves people, then God damn, that's logical whether you like it or not. Okay, and that's what a man called Calvin taught. John Calvin, as well as others, but he's the most famous. Came out of the 16th century Reformation. Okay, then there's man and man, and this was taught by a man named Jacob Arminius, who was a Dutchman in the 16th and early 17th century who revolted against Calvin's theology. Okay, and in America today, this is the popular teaching. This is the teaching, and I'm being overly simplistic to make my point. This is the teaching of the evangelical Protestant world. John Hagee, all those people on television, okay. Jerry Falwell, okay. John Wesley taught this. This is where you have to make a decision for Jesus. And if you make a decision for Jesus, well, that's great. And if you don't make a decision for Jesus, it's your fault. Okay. Now we're going to get to the passages just in a minute. The Bible teaches, if you're saved, God gets all the credit. For thine is the power, kingdom and the power and the... Glory. If you're not saved, it's your own fault. 
That's what the Bible teaches. But the dilemma is that you and I have intellectually, it's not logical, is it? And I know that. Yeah, The church that teaches this, we know this isn't logical. It's not logical. Because they say, now wait a minute, if God, if God gives you faith in Jesus, and these people don't have faith in Jesus, doesn't make sense, does it? Well, let's look at the Bible passages, then we'll do a little bit more and start wrapping it up so you're not too late. Here we go, let's look at the Bible. Pa- oh, by the way, uh, and this is, uh, this is the teaching of the Lutheran Church. Okay, let's look at the Bible passages, number 11. 1 Timothy 2, 4. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, what does that passage say about this point? Is that what that, does, does, does that passage say that God damns people? Pre, no, no. He says what? God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. By the way, John Calvin also taught, also taught Jesus didn't die for everybody. John Calvin taught Jesus died only for those who are actually going to be saved. Well, if John Calvin, if Jesus didn't die for everybody, how do you know he died for you? Big problem here, isn't there? Okay. So, God desires all men to be saved. So if anybody's lost, it's not because God wants them to be lost. He wants them to be saved. Matthew 23, 37. This is Jesus speaking. And I can't imagine he didn't have tears in his eyes when he said this. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you. And that means, if you, I don't know if you know your Old Testament. He's referring to the Old Testament prophets. Because the people of God in the Old Testament often rebelled against God, were unfaithful to God, and that's why all the Old Testament prophets came to try to bring them back to the faith and bring them back to the truth. And they often persecuted and killed the Old Testament prophets. That's what Jesus is talking about. Now look what he says. How often, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brooding wings and God wouldn't let you. Oh, that's not what it says, does it? He doesn't blame God for their unbelief. Who does he blame? Them. Jesus wanted them to believe in him. I'm the long-promised seed of the woman. I'm the Messiah, the Christ. Please believe in me. But they wouldn't. I don't hear any blame of God. Right? They didn't, they didn't believe because this part is right. They didn't believe because of themselves. Ah, now watch this one. This is a good one. Acts 7.51. I'll read it and then I'll explain it. You always resist the Holy Spirit. This is spoken by the very first Christian martyr, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7. As far as we know, in recorded history, the first person to be killed simply because he was a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay, And he was stoned to death for a sermon he gave to the Pharisees. And in the sermon, this is one of the things he says, and he's talking to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, who did not believe in Jesus. Ah. And why didn't they believe in Jesus? What does it say? Because they resisted the Holy Ah, now let's think this through. The gospel, right? Let's pretend like these are the Pharisees that didn't believe in Jesus. Okay, here comes the word, right, that Jesus spoke to them and Stephen spoke to them. And who's working in the word? The Holy Spirit. And so he comes in Jesus 
And to resist the Holy Spirit can only mean when these Pharisees heard the gospel about Jesus, the Holy Spirit wanted them to what? Believe in Jesus. The Holy Spirit wanted to give them faith in Jesus. And they said, no thanks. So it's not God's fault. It's their fault. Now let me explain this to you. When God works in his raw power, nobody can resist him. Like on the judgment day, and he's going to send some people to hell, nobody's going to be saying, I don't want to go. (laughs) When God works in his raw power, nobody can withstand him. Now listen carefully. However, when God works through means, word, okay, he can be resisted. For example, God gives us physical life, right? And who is it that keeps us alive according to the Bible? God does. But God keeps us alive with physical means. Food, water, etc. Now, can I defy God who gives me life and take that life away? Sure, right? Yeah. Does God want me to do this? But I can resist God and do it anyway. That's the way it works in the spirit realm too. Now, here's what we're trying to say. And then we'll take some questions here and then we'll move on very quickly. This does not make sense. But you've seen the Bible passages. With anybody who has faith in Jesus Christ, God gets all the credit. Somebody doesn't have faith in Jesus Christ, that's not God's fault. That's the individual's fault. Now, I realize as much as you do, the intellectual problems with that. And you can think about it all you want. Just make sure you have a Tylenol bottle you know, next to you. And, but if you start giving answers, if you start giving answers that are against the Bible, you're going to fall in one of two errors. You'll fall into the error of John Calvin, who says that salvation is by grace, but it's not universal. Salvation is not for everybody. Or if you try to answer this question, you'll become a, a follower of Arminius, which is today's American Protestant denominationalism. And you'll get into decision theology, which answers the question, well, why does he believe and he didn't? Well, he made a decision for Jesus. Well, that gives credit to man. So you've answered the question and you've resolved your logic, but it's not biblical. You've denied original sin. So if you try to answer this question, you're going to either become a Calvinist or an Arminianist. You're either going to deny universal grace or you're going to deny by grace alone. See, Lutherans believe in both universal grace, God wants everybody to be saved, and by grace alone that it's God's doing. And Lutherans just let it sit there because there's many things we do not understand. Okay? But we have to be faithful to the Word of God. Okay? Um, let me do 12 and then we'll see if there's any real quick loose end and then we'll wrap it up so I don't keep you too late. Number 12, what urgent call then comes to each one of us? Hebrews 4, 7, today when you hear his voice in the gospel, when you feel the Holy Spirit's working on your heart and mind, don't you resist the Holy Spirit. Don't you harden your heart. Okay? But rather, Mark 1, 15, repent of your sins and believe in the wonderful good news of God's forgiveness. Maybe we should leave it there. I've given you a lot to think of, and you'll have a chance to uh, ask those questions during the review. I know I repeat myself a lot, but again, you'll never understand this. You can try. 
I, I did this as a young man when I was 20. I tried to understand this. I finally just gave up. I just believed what the Bible said. Now let's end in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your many blessings given to us during the study of your word and grant us your grace as we believe what you have given to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 